we get started, I just wanted to say something um, about the ladies at Redeemer. I, um, several years ago, my wife and I, uh, we were uh, hosting um, for a long time, almost a year, uh, her mom, who had just gone through a pretty painful season and told us regularly all the reasons she had um, not to come to church. Um, and in the midst of that season, Tara had a surgery um, and was recovering. And as is always the case, um, people were bringing food uh, from Redeemer. And there was a moment when Shay Moore, who was in the midst of a fight with cancer and who was wearing a scarf over her head, um, carried a bag full of food into our home and sat and prayed with us and encouraged us. And when she left, Tara's mom looked at us and said, your friends are weird. (laughs) I think in that moment, um, perhaps more than any other moment before, I knew that the women in our church are extraordinary. Whether you're raising your children alone, or whether you're fighting for joy, surrounded by five crazy kids, or whether you're serving tirelessly the children of another. I think I speak for the elders when I say that um, the ladies in our church are brilliant, and the Lord has done a great work in your hearts, and that work is causing us to praise. Um, Jesus says, who are my mothers and sisters and brothers? And he redefines the family at that moment. And I feel that here when I see you ladies. You are my sisters and my mothers. And so before we get started, can we just pray and thank God for the gift of the ladies in this church? It's an embarrassment of riches, Father. You've given us so much grace. Your Spirit has done a great work in the lives of the ladies here at Redeemer, and I'm so grateful. Thank you for this sneak preview of what the kingdom will be like. And Lord, today may we celebrate well. In Christ's name, amen. So it's uh, been a while since we dipped into the story of the replacement king of Israel. So I need you to think back with me to remember the situation that Saul's in. In a word, the people of Israel and their king have turned away from the good God who kept them. The people have forgotten and they have forsaken God. They didn't want God anymore. They didn't want Him even though He had kept them safe from their enemies And even though he'd provided for them with bread and wine in a land flowing with milk and honey, and even though he had kept them and promised them a great kingdom and a great king, they didn't want God anymore. Sure, they wanted a king, but not God's king. They wanted a king like the nations. And they got him. Saul is a mess. Just like the nations in all the wrong ways. He is proud. And he is corrupt, but perhaps more than any of that, he's a coward. 
despite it all, for a short season, he leads the people. And sometimes that leadership is empowered by the rushing wind of the Spirit of God. So for a brief moment, we begin to hope, right, that Saul may not be so bad after all. Until the masses of the Philistine army approach, and that's when the house of cards tumbles. After a minor victory and a whole lot of hype, an overwhelming force of 3,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and more infantry than you can count arrives on the horizon to crush the people of Israel. And they panic. Everybody panics. Sheer panic everywhere. The men of Israel who had just shouted victory run away screaming, literally hiding in caves. And Saul, you know, ought to be leading the people in faith and trust that God is able to save, able to rescue his people. Saul is trembling in fear. The tragic irony here is that we've just read God's promise to his people, right? These people. The people who are running and screaming and hiding in caves. These people have just received God's promise to keep them and to protect them just moments ago. In chapter 12, I mean, we read some of it this morning. In chapter 12, on the heels of a miraculous victory over a powerful enemy, God reminds his people, do not be afraid. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. That's God's promise to his people and to their king. And even in the midst of their rebellion, he patiently reminds them. He mercifully reminds them not to be afraid. He pleads with them. Think back. Remember, people, think back to the years and years of my faithful work to keep you and to protect you and to preserve a people for myself. I promise it's not going to stop. I'll not forsake my people for my great name's sake. He's just made this promise. But Saul does not believe that promise. And we know that because as soon as his forces begin to flee in fear, and as soon as he feels like Samuel has delayed too long, he undermines the worship of God's people. And he treats God like the idols of the nations. I've burnt my cattle, God. Now you go destroy my enemies. That's not how God works. And that disposition is a problem, not just for Saul, but for everybody. Because the king represents the people. Samuel says to the people, if you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord it will be well. But if you will not obey the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against against you and your king. You and your king. The people's relationship with God is fundamentally tied to the faithfulness of the king. The people need a king who's faithful. But Saul, the king of Israel, just broke that faith and actively undermined the worship of God. He compromised the shadow of the law and he did it because he wanted to manipulate God. So when Samuel, God's chosen, arrives to intercede for the people 
Saul has already burnt the sacrifice. Saul, not Samuel. Though Samuel was chosen, though his ministry is an important shadow of the great coming high priest, though that shadow is the heart and the point of the law, Saul burns the sacrifice, forsaking the hope of the law, forsaking the atoning work of the high priest. And when Samuel arrives, he doesn't come empty-handed. Samuel arrives with words from God. You'll not be king over my people forever, Saul, because I'm seeking a true king, a king whose heart is like mine. In other words, a lot just happened. And if anything's clear, it's that the situation of the people of God is bleak. The soldiers of Israel are trembling. The people of Israel are hiding in caves. The blessing of God has left the king. And the prophet of God did not just intercede for the people. Oh yeah. And a massive, massive, massive army looms on the horizon. Now we're ready to read our text. Open with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel thirteen fifteen. Hold up your Bibles when you're there. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan his son and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah in the land of Shul. Another company turned towards Beth Haron. And another company turned towards the border that looks down on the valley of Sebuim, toward the wilderness. Okay, so a few things to note. First, and this is astounding, remember that this story started with a note that Saul kept a standing army of 3,000 men. 3,000. And just a moment ago, they were all present and accounted for. But now, with the dust of countless infantry clouding the horizon, Saul takes inventory and there's only 600 left. Four-fifths of Saul's forces fled in terror. 600 people remain. 600 So we learn here that when the Philistines arrive with their masses, it's not only the people who panic and hide in caves, it's the seasoned soldiers as well. Only 600 men remain, and Saul is desperate. Desperation. That's a good place for the work of God to unfold. We're just learning about how desperate are the people of God, because as soon as we read that only 600 men remain with the king, trembling before the Philistine masses. The texts tell us that raiders are being sent from the Philistine army, systematically destroying the homes and stealing the property of Israeli villages. Can you imagine the smoke from fires rising on the horizon in every direction, reminding trembling soldiers that they'll not return to their homes intact? They'll not return to the harvest awaiting. 
Things are bad, guys. Really bad. But that's not the worst of it. Keep reading. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshares, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Okay, so wow, this is new information. Apparently, the subjugation of the people of Israel was much worse than we had originally anticipated. Because these guys don't even have weapons. They've had their swords and their spears forcibly removed from their homes. They aren't allowed any blacksmiths. They have to travel to Philistia to sharpen their farming equipment. No swords or spears, only sickles, axes, farmer's stuff. They're facing this massive army with pitchforks and plowshares. Only Saul and his son have swords. That's it. No shields or armor. Facing a terrifying force armed with nothing but sickles. Not a weapon among them except in the hands of a coward and his boy. So the people are subjected to a ruthless oppressors. And they're surrounded by a bloodthirsty enemy. And they're being robbed of their homes and their farms and their livelihoods. They haven't a sword to their name. That's the situation of the people of God. Desperation. True, absolute desperation. That's the right place for the work of God to unfold. Keep reading. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to the young man who carried his armor. Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migran. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitab, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. All right, so I want to stop here for just a moment and think. This narrative began at a pretty high altitude just a moment ago. As we watched the people of Israel panic and fear, and we watched the forces of Israel flee and hide, but now very quickly the story zooms in to focus on two figures, Jonathan and Saul. And from this point in the story, it will remain focused on these two figures. And the camera will just pan back and forth. Jonathan, Saul, Jonathan, Saul, Jonathan. And the story is structured this way because we're supposed to be comparing them. And we're supposed to be weighing their actions and words against one another. And we're supposed to be deciding who to emulate. See, Jonathan is alone or almost alone. It's just he and his armor bearer. And even though they're alone, they're actually approaching the conflict. They're running toward the fight. 
toward the enemy of God's people. Imagine that. A sword and a pitchfork in tow, marching toward an unstoppable army. Alone. Saul, though, is not alone. In fact, every soldier that hasn't fled the scene is standing at his side. And get this, because it's funny in a sort of tragic way, Saul is in a cave. A cave. Make note of that. Because perhaps we should have expected that the men and women of Israel would panic and that And perhaps we would have expected when they panicked that they would hide themselves in caves. But this is Saul, king of Israel, tall and mighty and handsome. This is Saul who, filled with the Spirit, stormed the enemies of Israel and routed them in a tremendous victory. This is Saul, and at least he hasn't hid in shame and fear, right? At least he was a Gilgal waiting for Samuel. I mean, remember Saul left his oxen in the field to demand that the people of God rise up and fight? You remember this guy? That's the same guy. So when Samuel leaves Gilgal, Saul calls his men and he he makes his way to Gibeah. And that's very near to the battlefield. And we might even suppose that Saul, reserved and sober was slowly marching to his final stand, having lost the blessing of God. The last standing army of Israel led by her king. Surely these valiant men would stand and fight to the end. But in the most humiliating fashion, we read that as soon as Saul catches a glimpse of the Philistine army, he takes his 600 men and the priest of the mighty God of Israel... And they hide in a cave too. Guys, this is so much faithlessness on display right now. So much. And that picture of Saul cowering in fear, surrounded by his small army, that picture is purposefully set in contrast to the faith and courage of his son, who not only approaches the Philistine hordes, but does so nearly alone. In fact, the text makes it clear that Jonathan chose not to tell his father that he was headed to the front lines. And I think at this point, it's safe to assume that he did so because Saul wouldn't have let him go. Because Saul being in a cave right now is a pretty straightforward suggestion that he's given up hope on the people of Israel and he's lost hope in the rescue of God. But not Jonathan. Keep reading. I love this part, guys. It gets so good for me. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. And the name of one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. And one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other crag rose in the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who, was, who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the, to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, 
Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be a sign for us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet and his armor-bearer after him, and they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. For not by might does man prevail. Okay, so step back from this stunning display of faith and courage for a moment to revel in the action of these paragraphs. Do me a favor. Close your eyes just for a second. Close your eyes and and visualize a valley in the midst of two rocky heights. Just over the heights on one side, the trembling remnant of Saul's forces are hiding in caves, hopeless and helpless. And on the other side, just beyond that rocky height, are the mighty forces of God's enemies. They are many and they are strong. The people of God have rejected their only hope and they are running terrified from the nations whom they envy. All that separates Israel from her destruction is a dark valley and two poorly armed young men. You can open your eyes now. But nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So this kid, Jonathan, he leaves the shelter of Saul's forces and he means to engage the enemy of God's people. Not because he's confident in his own strength. Not because he's particularly able. He approaches the enemy because he knows who God is. And he does it with one sword and his buddy who's carrying farm equipment. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Visualize this situation for a moment, because as military strategy, it's nuts. He's already surrendered the higher ground. There are two guys, and they're engaging an entire garrison that's hovering over them at the top of a cliff. And to get to that enemy, they have to, it says, they have to climb with their hands and their feet. That's 
That's insane. Absolutely insane. Unless you believe that God is able. So listen to his words. Behold, we'll cross over to the men and we'll show ourselves to them. And if they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand and this shall be a sign to us. Okay, so I think it's, an impor- it's, it's important to note. This is something that I read this week that I found very hopeful. It's important to note that Jonathan knows that God is able. He has not a shadow of doubt about God's ability to save the nation of Israel with two young guys, a sword and a pitchfork. Ability is not at all the issue. He knows that God is able. He does not, though, at this point, assume that God is willing. And that's powerful for me because it says a lot about how God's people should relate to Him. We see this sometimes at the finest moments of faith in the Scriptures. Job says, God gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's because he's seen God's provision and he doesn't doubt God's ability to save and to rescue and to replenish. But he's okay if God chooses not to. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Just before they're cast into the fiery furnace, they look the most powerful man on earth dead in the eye and say, just so you know, Our God is able to deliver us. But even if He chooses not to, we're not going to worship any of your gods. God alone is worthy of worship, even if He chooses not to preserve our lives. And when Jesus is in the garden, He says, if you want to, remove this cup from Me. But not My will, Your will be done. That's the nature of a worshiper. And that disposition... That's the disposition of the redeemed. We know He is able, and we trust Him to choose whether or not to act according to our preference. We know Him, and we trust Him. I wasn't taught that. I was taught, if you believe that God is able, He will be willing. You see the distinction between those two things? That's not the truth. And Have you ever heard... If you ever hear words like that, you look at that guy and say, that's not faith. Not my will, but your will. That's faith. Yes, I believe that God is able to remove my cancer. And I hope He does. But even if He doesn't, my hope is not in this kingdom, but in the kingdom to come. That's faith. That's true faith. Everything short of that is a misunderstanding of who God is and what God is like. I heard John Piper once talk about this prayer. Not my will, but your will be done. And he said, you know, a lot of people refuse to end their prayers that way. And a lot of people scoff when they hear it. Like it's somehow nullifying the request you just made. They'll say to you, If you're asking for something, just ask for it. 
Don't void that prayer. Ask boldly. But when people say things like that, they're dramatically misunderstanding the point of prayer. Because when you submit your requests before the King of the universe, and you finish that request with not my will, but your will be done, what you're saying is, I'm not qualified to be king. I don't have what it takes to be sovereign over the whole world. I'm not wise enough, but you are. You have what it takes. You are wise enough. Please don't make me king. I surrender my will to yours because yours is better and yours is good and yours is wise. Not mine. Not my will, but your will. That's the disposition of the citizens of the kingdom. You're able, Lord. You're able because you're mighty. And I'd like for you to move in this way to protect us and to preserve us and to provide for us, but not my will, your will be done. That's what Jonathan is saying. So Jonathan says, look, if we say this thing, if they say this thing, we'll go up. If That's our sign that God has defeated our enemies before us. But if they say this thing, then we'll go back because there's no way on God's green earth that we can do this without them. And then they go. Now, if you pay attention to the words of the Philistines, it reveals just how abusive they've become and just how subjected the people of Israel have become. They say, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. Come up to us and we will show you a thing. In other words, look at those coward Hebrews finally leaving their holes and then come up here so we can show you a thing which is perhaps the most creepiest line in the Bible because we're not sure if they intend to murder them or to torture them or to or both but I think it's worth highlighting that these guys are the nations Philistia is the nations the Philistines are the nations you know those nations. Whose ways the Israelites envy. Whose gods the Israelites have worshipped. These are the nations they want to be like when they demand a replacement king. And these nations are despicable and they are cruel And they torture their enemies and sacrifice children to their gods. And that's awful. But perhaps more awful is how desperately the people of Israel want to be like them. We've seen Israel's envy of the nations for months. But never has it been so clear how absolutely absurd it is. The nations to whom Israel has turned for joy have given her only abuse, and yet she continues to run to them. That's madness. There's this song. It might be my favorite song. At the very least, we listen to it all the time in my house. I want to read you the lyrics. He said to me, child, I'm afraid for your soul. These things that they're after 
that you're after, they can't be controlled. This beast that you're after will eat you alive and spit out your bones. She'll string you along and she'll sell you a lie. But there's nothing but pain on the edge of a knife. There is no courage in flirting with fear to prove you're alive. I've seen the true face of the things you call life. The voice of the siren that holds your desires. But death, she is cunning and clever as hell. And she'll eat you alive. The people of Israel wanted so badly to be like the nations. They envied them. They chased after their gods. They worshipped in their temples. The foreign policy of the nation of Israel is yes, please. And all the while, they're warned by God, don't go that way. They are wicked. They are awful and they are mean and they will take your stuff and they will destroy your homes and they will murder your families. They will break you and enslave you. Still they chase after the nations. We too run to the nations. Isn't this our story? Do you feel the thrill of it when you pass the wares of the nations in the marketplace? Look, we run to pornography. We run to it, though we've seen it ruin lives and families and marriages. Look, you know, you know because you've seen it on the news dozens of times. You know that rapists and child molesters all have one thing in common pornography. You know it, yet you run to porn over and over again. It's madness. We run to work for joy. We invest hours and hours and hours of overtime in a business that no one will remember in 40 years. We spend nights and weekends in the office. Even though we've seen families shattered and marriages ruined because of it. Even though we read of wealthy men and women who devoted every ounce of their time and energy to a business or a product with nothing to show for it but money. Piles and piles of money with no real relationships. We know that, and yet we run to work for joy over and over again. It's madness. Name it. Right now. Name that thing that haunts you. That sin that's always lurking, demanding your attention. A bit more to drink tonight. You know that... That's unwise. You know why? Because you've seen it ruin lives. And you've seen, made, you've seen men made corrupt, and it all started right there. The advances of a coworker or your old friend from high school, those messages on Facebook from your ex boyfriends. You know why that's a terrible idea. You know why? Because you've seen it ruin lives, and yet temptation looms. The nations are awful. Absolutely corrupt and nothing to envy. And the promises of this broken world will only lead to corruption and wickedness of the worst kind. So this moment is particularly relevant not only for the people of Israel, but for us. 
Because this is a picture of the end that you're seeking when you sin. It's an ugly picture full of threats and abuse. Don't think that the enemy doesn't have that in mind. The goal, the objective of our enemy who prowls about like a lion seeking someone to devour, his goal is not for you to look at porn once. His goal is pedophilia, child molestation, prison, all defaming the name of Christ. You need to make that connection when you sin. Let's keep moving. So Jonathan and his armor bearer know now because of the Philistines' response. They know now what God, that God has given them into their hands. So they begin to climb. What faith. What courageous faith. And as they climb the rocks, the enemies fall before them. And that's a miracle. They fall. And so many fall in so few yards, the Philistine men panic and run because this type of victory is impossible. Swords flashing with miraculous accuracy and strength. Pitchfork flailing with unheard of force. These two Israeli boys were terrifying a force of tens of thousands. And if that display is not enough, God quakes the earth in chorus. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, by many or by few. For not by might shall man prevail. Do you remember when we first began reading the book of Samuel? We read Hannah's song. And we discussed how this song teaches us not only how God works, but also how to read this book. How this book works and what it means. Listen to the words of Hannah as you imagine the might of God working through Jonathan and the armor bearer. As you imagine the earth quaking and the pitchforks flailing. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces. Against them will He thunder in heaven. That's what we see here. We see the way that God will work on behalf of His faithful ones. And this display of faithfulness is at the same time a moment of great hope for the people of God and a moment of great tragedy for the replacement king of Israel. Keep reading. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Come, count and see who is gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. 
So Saul is hiding in a cave, terrified, hiding in a cave. And that isn't what faith looks like. But as Saul is cowering in fear, Jonathan was valiantly marching through the valley of the shadow of death because he knows that God is mighty to save his people. Jonathan is stepping out in faith, confident in the might of God, zealous for the glory of God. Saul is hiding in a cave, having lost hope in the God who saves, careless for the glory of the God of Israel. And if that were all, it would be enough of an indictment against the character of the replacement king of Israel. But at this moment, we get a glimpse of the darkness in Saul. A glimpse of the dark, glory-hungry heart of Saul, the replacement king. Saul notices a commotion. He hears screaming and he feels the ground quake and he watches as the mighty forces flee, routed. All of the sudden, victory is at hand. Victory. Impossible. Miraculous victory because Jonathan believed that God was able and zealously chased his glory. So Saul sees that that victory is unfolding and he calls the priest. And what you need to know is that there's a law in Deuteronomy about what should happen before you lead the people of Israel into battle. Let me read it to you. When you go out to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army larger than you own, than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is He who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you the victory. Saul knows this law. Never mind that he's already breaking the law in the first place by cowering in a cave instead of standing courageously before God's enemies. We know that he knows this law because when he sees that the forces of Philistia are scattering, he calls the priest. But just as the priest prepares to address the people and to proclaim the might and faithfulness of God to rescue his people. Saul notices that the battle is going really well. Really well as in almost over. So he says to the priest, never mind, scratch that, we don't have time. We don't have time to give glory to God for the victory that he's already winning. We don't have time to shout of the might of God for the mighty work that's already unfolding. Because if I wait any longer, I might not get any of the glory. So let's go. Coward. Glory hungry, faithless coward. Next to Jonathan, Saul's disposition is embarrassing. This is the king like the nations on display for all to see. Hiding in his cave, he, he trembles in faithful, faithlessness until the might of God is on display for all to see. And then, just as soon as it becomes clear 
that the battle has turned in their favor, he summons his entourage to pray on to the battlefield. And he looks to the priest and says, Never mind, we don't have time to give glory to the God who has delivered to us, who has delivered us. We don't have time to stop and to give him thanks for this miraculous victory. If we stop to praise, God might get all the glory, and I'd get none of it. So let's go. Jonathan is marching towards a countless enemy, confident in the might of God. Saul is cowering in a cave, faithless and hopeless. Jonathan is proclaiming the character and might of God in the valley of the shadow of death, zealous for the glory of God. Saul stifles the act of praise, zealous for the glory of Saul. And praise God who delivers his people despite their coward, glory-hungry king. Amen? The Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. The enemy of God's people is falling by their own hands and by the hand of the enslaved and by the hand of the oppressed. God doesn't need this coward king and his forces. God doesn't need anyone. When the power of God moves among the people, they rally. They leave their caves, pitchfork in hand, emboldened by the work of God. And when God is moving mightily among the people... The enslaved break free and the oppressed rise up and the traitorous men of Israel turn back to the promised land. When they see that God is at work to rescue His people, they turn against their oppressors. For the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. This is how God moves. This is how God rescues His people. He moves through the weak and the feeble and the poor. That's our story. And he demonstrates his strength by overpowering the might of the wicked with feeble hands bearing pitchforks and trembling hands bearing pickaxes. Here's the application. Consider Saul and Jonathan. The difference between these two men is not whether they're weak. They're both weak. Next to this overwhelming force, they are nothing. The difference isn't whether they're helpless, because they're both helpless. The situation of Saul and the situation of Jonathan is exactly the same. They are both desperately in need of the power of God to save Jonathan believed that God was able and Saul didn't. That's the difference. Now I bet you if you asked Saul, he'd say that he believed that God was able, but the proof is in the pudding. Actions speak louder than words. And one man hiding in a cave, though surrounded by 600 soldiers, and another was marching against a terrible enemy that day, against impossible odds because he believed that God was mighty to save. Nothing 
can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. See, God is the hope of the truly desperate. And brothers and sisters, we are truly desperate. The good news is that feeble hands and weak knees are welcome in the stronghold of God. And if you haven't already, you will find yourself desperate. Your eyes will be opened and you'll find yourself surrounded by the terrifying force of your own corruption and by the threats and schemes of the prince of the power of the air. And in that moment, you will stand helpless and desperate for a mighty work of God. The mark of the faithful is not merely desperation. The mark of the faithful is the march towards war despite that desperation. Because the faithful believe that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Let's pray.